Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is the morning of February the 23rd on the west coast of the United States. It's uh, early evening in, in, in Europe. It's getting dark there. It's still light here. Um, and the lights are on in all sorts of ways, I think, today, February 23rd. We're trying to make sense of the news. Uh, of course, here we have some more lights. Uh, apparently, the United States is entering uncharted territory. I don't know what uncharted territory actually means. There are 500,000 now COVID-related deaths. In other words, we're beyond the stats, or at least the history of stats. Everywhere in the news today, there are numbers and stats. It's all about interpretation. What the bond market is telling us about the Biden economy. It's as if we're we're reading uh, Foucault or Thucydides or something when it comes to the financial markets. Uh, stats are everywhere in the UK. We're told that gambling uh, jumped during the stay of Corona. What does that mean? Is it because we're bored or we're becoming more addicted to gambling? One guy who's done a lot of thinking about the relationship between statistics, numbers, and the world is my guest today. Uh, he's talking to us from his loft in Oxford, England, Tim Harford. He's the author of a new book, The Data Detective. It's interesting, Tim. Uh, the book has different titles in the US and the UK. It's just yes. out in the US today or this week. Uh, in the US, it's called The Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics, whilst in the UK, the book is How to Make the World Add Up, 10 Rules for Thinking Differently About Numbers. Now, as an Anglo-American, I'm not going to make any jokes about why Americans need easy rules, whereas the Brits are more comfortable with just rules. Uh, but more generally, why did you write a book about being a data detective? That's your kind of day job, I guess, as an economist. Um, yeah. So there were, there were two reasons, really. One was that I felt that somebody needed to push back against the sense that the data are always misleading. The statistics are always lying to us. I've got a, a bookshelf full of great books about how to think about statistics. And almost without exception, they phrase the problem as how not to be fooled. So there's, there's Jordan Ellenberg's How Not to Be Wrong. There's John Allen Paulos's Modern Classic in Numeracy. Ben Goldacre's brilliant book, Bad Science. Going back to the 1950s, probably the most famous book about statistics ever written, How to Lie with Statistics. And there are others. And there's something strange, isn't there? about the fact that all of these books teaching us about statistics are warnings against misinformation. If, if um, 
I don't know, David Attenborough writes a book about uh, nature or Brian Cox writes a book about astronomy. Or you don't, it's not couched in all of these warnings as to how, how not to be completely wrong about everything in biology or how not to be wrong about completely everything in, in astrophysics. They're, they're framed in a more positive way. And, and I, I felt that there's something quite deep going on there. The other reason uh, was that uh, while the statistics may tell us the truth, we are perfectly capable of telling ourselves lies. You just look around, look at the last few years of American politics or, or elsewhere. And so I thought it wasn't enough to, to write a book teaching people how to think about numbers if I couldn't also address the broader problem of, of how to think, what are our own biases and filters, what are the ways we fool ourselves. So those two reasons really were the motivations behind the data detective. Great children's books open up new worlds for discovery. With Literati Kids, your child can explore uncharted places every month with spellbinding stories handpicked by experts. Literati Kids is a try-before-you-buy subscription book club. Each month, Literati delivers five vibrantly illustrated children's books, bringing the immersive magic of reading right to your home. Literati's age-based book clubs ensure appropriate reads for your budding bookworm, whether they're snuggling with you for story time or letting their imagination roam free. Each book bundle is thoughtfully tailored by education experts with five stories meant to spark new interests and nurture a healthy curiosity. No more sorting through hundreds of titles trying to guess what your child will cherish. Literati sends you the best in children's literature. Choose to purchase the ones they love and send the rest back for free. From art and adventure to tales of compassion, each Literati box follows a new enriching theme. With personalised extras like stickers, surprises and special guest artwork. Each box is a fun and fresh adventure. Head to literati.com slash keen on for 25% off your first two orders. Select your child's book club and start them on a literary journey like no other. Literati.com slash Keenon is the only place to find 25% off your first two orders of this one-of-a-kind book subscription, the most joyful way to foster a lifelong love of learning. That's literati.com slash Keenon. Uh, as you say, uh, economists and statisticians have a bad name. We almost pleasure ourselves by giving them a bad name. They give themselves a bad name. They enjoy that. Uh, uh, you've written a number of books before this one on the undercover economist. Um, why should economists or statisticians want to be undercover? Is there something shameful about your business? Uh, well, we certainly took a reputational hit and uh, I think partly deserved during the financial crisis. 
But actually, The Undercover Economist was was published in 2005, and it was written, really written in 2002, so way before economists had anything to be embarrassed about. So really, what I was trying to do there was give the sense of somebody walking through the world and noticing things and sharing, and you know, and it's me, so sharing what it is that I've noticed about the, the pricing in Starbucks or the fact that we keep getting snarled up in traffic or how different supermarkets conduct their business. So there's this sort of sense of the, I guess we come back to the idea of the detective, the sense of somebody out there uh, wearing out the shoe leather and solving problems that I wanted to convey. Uh, this idea, of course, of the data detective will bring for many people to mind the great British detective, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, my my daughter is still obsessed, even though she's 19 years old, with the Benedict Cumberbatch series about Sherlock on the BBC. A uh, couple of questions about detectives, Tim. Um, you seem to me to be very British. Is there something British about being a detective, about standing back from the facts, about analyzing coldly, lucidly, analytically, objectively? Well, I, I suppose the American version, the gumshoe, is much more emotionally involved. You know, with the with the the dame in the red dress and the being double crossed and triple crossed. Whereas Sherlock Holmes in the Conan Doyle novels is a, I mean, he's got his he's got his problems, but he's much more you know, emotionally aloof. I suppose that's what I'm trying to get and people psychotic, to do. And though. I mean, the, the Oh, yeah, he's of, got his problems, for sure. Well, I don't know if it's problems. I mean, that that's the interesting thing, I guess, of, about the show. I have to admit, I actually have... I, when I was a lot younger, I read uh, Sherlock Holmes, but uh, my my mind about Holmes is borrowed from the, the BBC series. It, it seems as if the series suggests that being a tech... Uh, um, being a successful detective requires you to be psychotic if not slightly insane and of course Holmes's sidekick Watson is all too sane all too analytical and a terrible detective yes so what do I think about that I guess two things one is that I'm trying to get people to combine the insights they get from the numbers with the insights they're getting from the world so this idea I was just describing with the the undercover economist of actually going out there and looking because if you just go out and look there's a lot of stuff that you miss. If you only look at the, the data, if you're only looking at the spreadsheets, well, there's a lot of stuff you miss there as well. So is it possible to combine the two? I suppose you could say Holmes and Watson together provide this synthesis. Um, the other thing, though, is uh, I think it is really enormously important to be calm, maybe not emotionally aloof or emotionally detached or emotionally stunted, but calm when you're trying to evaluate the data. And by evaluate the data, I'm generally referring to something as simple as looking at a post on Facebook or reading a headline in the New York Times or watching MSNBC or Fox News, because they're all trying to get us to feel things. They're all trying to get an emotional response. I mean, that's, you know, journalism is partly entertainment. You want that emotional response. You want people to feel outraged or empowered or engaged or afraid, or that you want them to feel something. And that's fine, but it really doesn't help us think in a clear way about the facts that are being presented. I, early in the book, I talk about this remarkable art forgery 
Uh, and what, what's remarkable about it, the, the forger was a name called Han van Megren. And the person who was fooled was an amazing um, critic, Abraham Bradius. There we go, that's Bradius. And and here we have, uh, and here we have the the work, the Vermeer work, which uh, did all the falling. Yeah, well, the, I mean, it wasn't. It was supposed to be by Vermeer. Of course, it wasn't by Vermeer. It was by Van Meegeren, and it's not very good. I mean, look at the um, look at the, uh, the the yellow sleeve in the foreground. It's for those those who can see the video. It's like it's like a comedy arm. It's kind of detached at the elbow. I mean, that's not that's there's something quite quite right about that and 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 your book um talks about or, or right uh discusses this uh abraham bridius character a, a, a great art critic who fell for it who bought he, into yeah. the vermeer fake and he bought into it because well he said it himself he said when i was shown this painting i had difficulty controlling my emotions that was the thing. He got carried away. I mean, the details are fascinating. We don't have time to go into them. Maybe we do. But of, of the theories that he had and why this painting was so emotionally satisfying to Bradius. But the big picture is he really, really wanted it to be a Vermeer. And so even though his expertise was un, you know, undoubted and unparalleled, he, he fell for quite a clumsy forgery. In fact, his, his expertise was, was directed at providing reasons for him to believe in this thing Hans Vermeegeren who was the, yeah. the forger uh, rather nasty character associated with the Nazis too I'm, I'm curious um, Tim are you presenting the world as a work of art and are you suggesting that we as human beings need to stand back from that art and essentially avoid looking at it because of course great art is against statistic. Great art is against data. I showed uh, uh, this, this Vermeer fake, which is very unengaging ultimately. The more you look at it, the more you, you want to look away. But when, of course, we look at a Vermeer, we lose our sense of reason. That's its genius. You write in the book about a woman in blue, Vermeer's magnificent painting which I actually made the center of one of my books. The beauty of Vermeer's Woman in Blue is its mystery. The very, the whole, the whole discourse of, of the painting, of not knowing who this woman is, of not knowing what she's reading, it, it's anti-statistics, it's anti-factual. Is that fair? Uh, I think that's fair. I mean, certainly I wouldn't try to compare a Vermeer artwork to a spreadsheet. They're very different things. But the mental process that leads you to look at a, an ugly fake and conclude that it is a masterpiece on the same level as these, these Vermeers, the genuine Vermeers, I wanted to understand that. Because I think the same basic process is at work when we look at a newspaper headline or a, we watch the, the, the TV news or we look at a Facebook post and we... Well, we do one of two things uh, which are similar. We, we convince ourselves of things that simply aren't true because we want them to be true. And we reject things that are true um, and we should, we should accept, but we reject them anyway. So but isn't that example, what being human is, Tim? Believing in myth, believing in things that most of us know 
that most of the things that we believe in aren't true. Religion, love, life itself. I think it depends what myths you're embracing. And if the myth, for example, is that on the 4th of March, Donald Trump will be inaugurated and that will be the, he'll be the first true president since 1873, I'm not sure how much joy that myth is really bringing anybody. I mean, I'm a, I'm, my nerdery extends to, you know, fantasy role-playing games. I, you know, I love creating imaginary worlds with my friends, perfectly happy to lose myself in, uh, in a just slightly lowbrow Marvel movie. That's all, no problem with any of that, um, or what we, we might call the higher myths. I'm perfectly happy to throw myself into things that aren't true. But uh, I think you want to, to know whether it's true or not. And to confuse you know, Captain America with, uh, you know, with reality is not really where we want to go, is it? No, and that, that's the point of your book uh, and, and indeed your work. You, you, uh, you wrote in 2006, trust me, I'm an economist. It's all about trust. And your book is an attempt to make sense of some people who get the data right and some people who don't. Some people who resist, if you like, the, 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 the fantasy of believing and those who keep their distance. Once again, in this Anglo-American duel, uh, one, of the, one of the stories in the book is about two characters, an American who couldn't keep his distance and a Brit who could. The American is who? Irving Fisher. Irving oh, he's Fisher. Remarkable man. What a tragic figure. And so, and this is a man who was absolutely committed to the data, but I think so committed to the data that he refused to recognize that there are certain things about the world that are uncertain, unknowable, unpredictable. And when the data turned against him, it, he basically made a forecast of the stock market reaching a permanently high plateau in late 1929. Any, anybody who knows anything about financial history knows that's not a, not a very good forecast. He was just unable to let go of that. He convinced himself that everybody who was selling these shares, they were the ones who were delusional and kept borrowing and, and buying money all the way down. Uh, and all the way down was quite a long way. I, if I remember the, the numbers right, he had shares in Remington Rand, the stationery company, at 50, $56. And he borrowed and bought money at $26. That was three months in. In the end, they, they reached $1. So that's a great way to wipe yourself out. And, what, and I have to say, I mean, he made this terrible mistake. I have a lot of admiration for Fisher and a lot of sympathy for it. Well, he's all but too I mean, he believed. Yeah. He couldn't give up believing, could he? He couldn't. But I find it very interesting to contrast him with John Maynard Keynes, who was a contemporary, Keynes slightly younger. Right. We, had, made, uh, we had Zachary Carter on the show recently talking about his bio of Keynes. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the narrative is, Keynes always seems to, excuse the vulgarity, come out on top. What is it about Keynes that makes him such a remarkable character? Uh, well, yeah. Never the mug. He's, he's uh, well, I suppose in the end he was the one still standing and, and Fish, Fisher was... Fisher was disgraced. I mean, he, I, I don't know what it is about Keynes. He is a remarkable, one of the, one of the stories I tell in the book is of him um, uh, crossing the channel during the, the First World War, having persuaded the British Treasury to loan him some money to go and um, buy distressed artworks from an auction in Paris 
1918, German guns still shelling the city. Uh, and he, he buys a few few masterpieces for the National Gallery and a few few for himself, picks up a Cezanne for himself, and then scrambles back across the channel. I mean, this is one, the basic yeah, one of the reasons why Keynes was able to keep his head while Fisher didn't was, I, I don't know that much about Fisher, was that Keynes himself was um, very much associated with the Bloomsbury set, with Virginia Woolf and many other writers and philosophers. And in his own way, he was also a philosopher. So he himself wasn't as reliant on statistics as a, as a, as a pure math man like Fisher. I think that's part of it. I mean, one can speculate about the psychology, the difference, because, because just to fill in the missing jigsaw piece in this story, Fisher and Keynes both basically made the same mistake. It wasn't that Keynes was a better forecaster. They both uh, failed to see the Wall Street crash coming. But Keynes was very nimble and liquidated his positions, got out, changed his strategy, and in the long run was fine. Whereas Fisher, Fisher hung on. So it wasn't a, it wasn't that Keynes was a better forecaster. It was that he was quicker to realize he was wrong. So why was he quicker to realize he was wrong? I think it is partly that Fisher had more confidence in the fact that there were certain facts about the world that are just knowable, and you can pin them down, get enough data, and you can understand everything. And Keynes was like, well, the Keynes, I think his view was that the data are useful. We gather them, we we learn what we can, but in the end, there are certain things about which we, we simply do not know. Is this famous quote in the uh, the general theory about certain things you might want to forecast and about these, these things, there is no basis on which to form any scientific probability whatsoever. We simply do not know. Was, I, th I don't think Fisher would ever have said, we simply do not know about anything. We'd always have said, well, we'll get some more numbers. But it, I mean, there may have been other things. Fisher, for example, I think was was more committed, was more publicly committed to his his position, and Fisher had struggled financially early in life. His his father had died the week he went up to Yale, so he's surrounded by all these rich kids at Yale, trying to make ends meet and feed his his mother and his his siblings. I think Keynes was just more financially comfortable, more confident, um, more of a gambler. So who knows exactly why they had the those differences, but they did, and it really made an enormous difference to how their lives finished. Keynes died uh, a millionaire by some uh, measures, and Fisher was basically close to bankruptcy. I'm not sure if, if, if Freud wrote about numbers and sexuality or numbers and being a male, but there's certainly something very male about this conversation. So I was particularly intrigued in your book by uh, your discussion of Florence Nightingale, of course, is anything but male. Uh, I'd like you to tell us about Nightingale's contribution to uh, this data detective uh, argument you make, but also whether or not women look at data and numbers differently from men. So for, for those who want to know more about Nightingale, I should say the My Cautionary Tales podcast is about to release an episode. Early March, we'll release an episode uh, about her and Nightingale is played by Helena Bonham Carter in this episode. So I'm kind of astonished that I've uh, ended up writing script for Helena Bonham Carter. But um, it, who, it is an amazing uh, story. Grandmother was uh, uh, what the, the the daughter of. She's a she's a distant cousin is the simplest way to say it. Uh, Florence Nightingale's aunt was Helena Bonham Carter's great 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 grandmother. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, I've probably got the number of greats there wrong. Well, there is a family connection. Involved with Keynes and the Bloomsbury set, but they all seem to have come out of the same uh, Hollywood studio. Yeah. So Nightingale, remarkable person, uh, most famous as a nurse. She was the uh, in charge of the nurses who were sent out to Istanbul to staff the hospitals tending soldiers coming back from the Crimean War in the mid-1850s. And Which that was, a, was, of course, the most irrational and um, anti, anti-numerical war in history, the charge of the Light Brigade and the stupidity of that war. Every English schoolboy knows that story. Yeah, so when it's up against stiff competition, but you may be right, there's a, there's a cautionary tales about the charge of the Light Brigade as well. I mean, we do all kinds of errors. But... Um, I mean, it was a, the, the particular catastrophe that Nightingale was confronted with was the fact that the soldiers in her hospitals were dying in huge numbers uh, of uh, transmissible diseases. And she didn't really know why because we didn't have germ theory at the time, but that we, she had some theories. Uh, and what I find remarkable about her is that when she came back from the front, she was very sick, by the way. She, she caught something. We're not exactly sure what, but she caught some condition uh, out uh, out in the east, and was largely bedridden for, for several decades. But despite that, she was absolutely determined to figure out what had happened and what the lessons were, and concluded that, this is not surprising to modernise, uh, that the problem was poor hygiene, that the problem had been solved when a sanitary commission had come from London and had basically done things like flush the, the dead horse out of the water supply. That really helped. And um, and she demonstrated all this statistically, with and she was working with various noted statisticians and epidemiologists, but also was really aware, and this is what made her unique, really aware of the power of data visualization. So she, she yeah, and we have this all this out. It's amazing. This is part. Of, it's half of the graph. This is half of this amazing it's story. Half that is she, better than nothing, right? Yes, but the the so this graph is a uh, sometimes called the rose diagram. So the blue wedges uh, that spiral out and threaten almost to spill off the page, they are deaths month by month of soldiers from uh, infectious diseases such as cholera. And, and people listening to this uh, need to watch because Tim is doing his data visualization <laughs> section on half of Florin Florence Nightingale's <laughs> visualization of, uh, of of why people were dying yes it's worth worth if you google the um if you can't find the the video stream of this conversation if you google florence nightingale rose diagram you'll see it but you showed only half of it and what makes it such a powerful piece of data visualization is the second half is another spiral each of these spirals represents a year and the second half is much smaller and rather than swelling out indicating this this a monstrously growing death toll, it spirals inwards. So the, the, it was and by presenting these two spirals next to each other, it was a before and after story. Uh, catastrophe before, the sanitary commission comes, they clean up the hospitals, and then uh, the death toll collapses. It's a very, very clever piece of visual storytelling. And she was it's quite clear from looking at her letters how conscious she was of the need to uh, to present the data in this way. There's one offhand remark she makes about Queen Victoria after sending her a report. She says, she may look at it because it has pictures. So she knew, 
She knew people, people like taking pictures and they're busy. Yeah, that, that sounds the kind of thing a man would say, Keynes or something. Uh, you, 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 you still haven't answered the more interesting part of the question, which is about men, women, and data. Do we look at things differently, Tim? Is there any total well, or, 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 or hard evidence to prove that one way or the other? I mean, it's an, it's an interesting question. I don't have an interesting answer. My suspicion is that a lot of this is, uh, is, is cultural, that, that uh, girls are told that you know, maths is not for them and boys are told that maths is for them. Um, that is a problem that is partly being solved over time. Um, in economics, we still have a huge uh, gender problem, very, very few women. Uh, which I think impoverishes the subject and we need to solve it. But there have been some fantastic uh, recent contributions to statistics and thinking about statistics by women. Uh, so, I mean, the, several of the recent, several recent presidents of the Royal Statistical Society have been uh, women. Uh, we, most of the producers of more or less uh, have been women. Um, the um, Hannah Fry has an amazing book about algorithms called Hello World, and Caroline Criado Perez, fantastic book about gender biases in data called Invisible Women, and there are others uh, that I could name. So uh, I think it would be a terrible shame if uh, we concluded that women were you know, somehow not up for this subject because you know, they, they need statistics and statistics needs them. Ever the detective, Tim, dodging that silly question. Um, yesterday we had Bill... Bernstein on the show. He has an interesting new book, The Delusion of Crowds, Why People Go Mad in Groups. And I think Bernstein's notion of madness is losing reason, losing our ability to analyze, is one of the other dangers of making sense of the world, falling into groups. Of course, we live in the age of the group, of Facebook groups, of the echo chamber nature of our culture you your day job is with one of the very few newspapers that seems to the, the financial times that has escaped that um it is the biggest enemy today of accurate data groups group think mob rule it's certainly a serious obstacle i don't I, there, there are so many enemies to to clear thinking and to data but the the, the echo chamber effect of social media, the fact that you can surround yourself with like-minded people is, I think, quite troubling. I mean, to be, to be you know, realistic about this, there were echo chambers before social media. You just look at the newspapers and the fact that people were able to sort themselves into buying particular newspapers that pandered to their groups. But uh, now we, we do it to ourselves, possibly slightly exaggerated by algorithmic processes, but we don't need the algorithms to sort ourselves into echo chambers. And it is, it is problematic. Uh, I mean, I haven't, I haven't read um, Bernstein's book. It sounds fantastic. Yeah, I think you uh, did but, enjoy it. And I think having you and him on the show together would be great. We also had another guy uh, who, who I think you'd find interesting, Joe Henrik, the Harvard anthropologist, a highly sort of eclectic intellectual on the show. He has a new book out called... Uh, the weirdest people in the world, how the West became psychologically peculiar and particularly prosperous. His reading is um, quite literally that uh, uh, a sort of a, 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 an argument about the changes in the Catholic Church. I wonder if in terms of the weirdest people in the world, our religion today in the West of Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic people, our religion is data itself. 
Is that the new faith, the thing that has replaced the Roman Catholic Church? Well, I, I wonder, because if so, people seem to have an awful lot of doubt about it. You, you can't mention statistics without hearing people talk about damned lies and statistics. Uh, so I think possibly we have a more religious attitude to, to algorithms, to these mysterious forces that we don't fully understand, pouring over data sets that we are not allowed to look at. And then somehow we tell ourselves that that all works out. Um, and there's a chapter about that in the data detective and what we might want to do about that. But I, I see that as slightly different to uh, un uncritically worshipping the data itself. Certainly my own experience is that um, there's not much worship and there's, there's plenty of criticism. And, and uh, it takes a brave person to, to make sense of this. You are, of course, brave, not quite as brave as Galileo. Uh, the narrative is really one of the Enlightenment, isn't it? Of, 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 of standing against unreason. Your, your book, your work, perhaps even your persona is part of that tradition. Well, the, the, any comparison to Galileo is flattering, even if you, I think, rightly say he's a lot braver than I am. There's a story about Galileo that I can't get out of my head, even though it's probably false, uh, about him uh, trying to get the cardinals to look through his telescope. Uh, they're persecuting him and he's saying, look, you see the moons of Jupiter, just have a look. And they, they refuse to look. And as I say, that story, I think, is possibly not true or certainly exaggerated. But then I think about what I see around me all the time today. I see our modern telescope is, is data, statistics. This is how we see things that we wouldn't be able to see in any other way. And it's particularly important for neuroscience, for social sciences. I mean, we, we, we have this tool, and yet I see all around me people saying, I won't look. And for the same reason that the cardinals supposedly wouldn't look through Galileo's telescope, because they were afraid of being tricked. I'm afraid of what I might see, and I don't trust it, so I won't even look. And that seems to me to be a great shame. That's yeah. what I'm trying to, to push against. And in a funny way then, Tim, you're in the same business as Vermeer. You're in the business of getting people to look uh, your new book, The Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics. is just out in the, um, in the US. And if you want less easy rules, even if it's the same book, you can buy the British edition. Uh, must read, as always, with all your work, both your books and your, your journalism. Uh, as I said at the beginning, Tim, you're stuck in your loft. It looks like a very nice loft in Oxford, many worse places in the world to be, but you're stuck indoors. Like all of us, I'm in Berkeley, California. What else should people be reading in these strange times in addition to your work? Well, the, the, uh, the, I was looking for books in, in um, Easy Reach, and I have a very messy desk, so there are several. What I'm reading right now uh, is uh, Twyla Tharp's book, The Creative Habit. You can see I'm, I'm properly reading it. I read it many times before, uh, but there's some fascinating stories, and it's a very practical book about creativity. And uh, if people are interested in numbers, I do strongly recommend this by my friend David Spiegelhalter, The Art of Statistics. This is one of few books um, that actually presents statistics in a, in a more positive light. A bit is more technical. Is it, Vermeer? Is it, sorry, is it as good as Vermeer? As good as Vermeer? Uh, David Spiegelhalter is a master, but um, I mean, we're, we're, all, we're all falling short if Vermeer is the, uh, is the benchmark. Well, 
Tim Harford, any any excuse to show the woman in blue is uh, cheers up my day. And uh, a man who who combines an analysis of Vermeer and, and 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 Keynes and Galileo, one of the one of the world's leading enlightenment in econ economists, a man who is getting us to trust economics and facts. Again, I want to thank you. And I got to have you back on the show. Maybe I'll have you back with Bill Bernstein and then you can contribute to making much more sense of the world than uh, most people have. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.